Okay, we're continuing in our study of Genesis 4, verses 5 through 16. We got through page 7 of the handout last uh, time we, we met. So I'm going to be picking up on page 8. Um, but by way of reminder, uh, we're looking at this antithesis between Abel and Cain. Uh, page 1 just capsulizes the diametrically opposed realities in these two. Two sons, Cain, the firstborn, and Abel. Two offerings, fruit from the ground, and uh, the firstlings of the flock, and the uh, fat portion thereof. But most importantly, an offering made in faith, uh, in in compliance with what God had revealed, uh, an offering was to be, and one uh, that was made just by human undertaking. Uh, Abel's offering was regarded, accepted by the Lord, and the uh, commendation of the Lord for Abel was that he was declared righteous, and Cain's offering was not regarded well. Uh, the Lord extended grace to Cain, but, uh, but Cain's offering was, uh, was rejected. Two religions, um, that may not seem obvious looking at it, but, but really you have Cain represents trying to approach God on one's own terms. And we see that all the time in our world. And I did that before God saved me, trying to approach God on my terms as opposed to his terms. Abel, on the other hand, approached God in conformity with what he had revealed that would please God. And that's really what matters. That's the only thing that matters is what is it that pleases God. And Abel did that precisely that was required to please God. And God commended him for that. And two outcomes, uh, a rejection with, with Cain and a declaration of righteousness with Abel. And Hebrews 11, of course, tells us that Abel, though he is dead, his voice still carries on through the millennia, speaking of justification by faith. And that's how Abel was justified, by faith by offering a sacrifice in obedience to what God had revealed to his parents. Remember in Genesis 3.21 that the Lord made a sacrifice, uh, took an animal, uh, sacrificed an animal and took the skins of the animal and clothed um, Adam and Eve in their shame, in their nakedness, in their distance from God. God made that cloak for them. And that's the nature of salvation. Adam and Eve had made their own cloak, had made their own covering. And in this world, there's all sorts of instances where people are making their own way of approaching God, and it never works. But God took the initiative. That's the essence of, of, of what happens in Scripture, is it's all God's work. It's monergistic is the term that we've used often. God took the initiative to, to cover Adam and Eve with a sacrifice that was acceptable to him. He did that, and it was at a cost of a life, an innocent life. And it looks forward to the sacrifice that is acceptable to God, and that is a, a blood sacrifice ultimately culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our stead as a propitiation for sin, the one who bore the wrath of God that we deserve and who lived that perfect life so that we who have no righteousness could and are literally clothed with the righteousness of Christ and all of this is pictured in a, in a very significant way in that offering that God made 
where there was blood that was shed and Adam and Eve were covered. And it looks forward to the active obedience of Christ in his perfect obedience to the law and the passive obedience of Christ in his suffering uh, the wrath of God on our behalf. Uh, and Adam and, and uh, Abel and Cain understood what was required. And Cain disregarded it, and as a result, Cain's offering was rejected. Abel took the teaching that, no doubt, his mother and father had given him uh, as to what God had revealed that would be pleasing to God. He took it to heart. He offered a sacrifice in faith. That's not my interpretation. That's the, under the inspiration of Scripture. Hebrews 11.4 tells us exactly that. So there's the verdict in God's own pen in Hebrews 11 as to the satisfactory nature of what Abel did. So you have this antithesis between two brothers, two religions, two sacrifices, two outcomes. And we're looking at sin. You remember the, the word that was given to Cain was that sin is crouching at the door and it wants to overtake you. Uh, because Cain, was his countenance was cast down when the Lord rejected his offering. And the Lord asked a question, why is your countenance cast down? And the Lord does that. He, he's going to continue to ask questions, and, and he's going to ask, where's your brother? Now, the Lord's asking questions to draw out the heart of Cain. And the, but the Lord in his grace tells Cain, if you do well, then it will end well for you. But Cain did not take that to heart. He was angry with God. And Cain represents the seed of the serpent, and Abel represents a righteous line. The righteous line was slain and killed. And so, the, at least humanly speaking, that was the end of the righteous line. But we'll, we'll see as the scripture continues to unfold that God restores the righteous line in Seth. There was another child that was born of Eve, and, and so Cain was not the end of the story. Uh, God and his promises, his plans always are fulfilled. And so the fact that Abel was slain by his unrighteous brother did not, of course, obviate God fulfilling his promise that a seed would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. That line would go through Seth. But when we stopped last time, we were looking at sin. And the first, there were a number of aspects, sin crouching. And we, we talked about um, the admonition, the warning that was given to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to overtake you. It's a warning, frankly, that all of us need to take to heart. But he didn't take it to heart. He rejected it. Cain was angry at God. So we looked at sin crouching, then we looked at sin striking, and Cain literally lured his righteous brother into the field and murdered him in cold blood, premeditated murder. And then we're going to look at the third aspect, uh, sin is convicted. And then a word of application, sin conquered. Uh, we'll see that, that by way of application for us as believers. But we're picking up in this aspect, uh, really, we, the last time we met, we were looking at 1 John 3.12. And first, in, John is saying um, of Cain, why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? This is the bottom of page 7. Because his own deeds were evil. Cain's deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Abel's deeds were righteous. So that's where we'll pick up this week. Top of page 8. It's important that we realize that sin is always a matter of the heart. It manifests itself, of course, 
in the outworking, in the actions that are taken, but it always begins in the heart. Luke 6, uh, 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Luke 6, it begins in the heart. It always does. James 3, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that's exactly what Cain had, bitterness in his heart, bitterness towards God. But the bitterness that Cain harbored toward God was displaced and meted out on his innocent, righteous brother, Abel. But it began with hatred for God. Do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Cain was arrogant and he lied. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but earthly, natural, demonic. That's exactly what happened in the life of Cain. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and and here we have in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel precisely that, jealousy and selfish ambition on the part of Cain, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you've got this antithesis between a so-called wisdom of the devil, Satan himself, which engenders um, disorder, destruction, and it's, it, it finds its origin in selfish ambition and, uh, and hatred. And then in James 4, verse 1, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That's precisely what took place with Cain and Abel. Cain did not have the approbation of God. Cain did not enjoy the approval of God. His brother, on the other hand, did. Cain looks across the table, so to speak, and he sees his brother enjoying the smile of God. And Cain sees the frown, if I can use that expression of God. But it's a frown that's only temporary because Cain was given an opportunity to repent and to do right. God extended that latitude to him, but he chose to disregard it, and he chose to go his own way, and the, the results are, are, are there before us. By way of application, we, we look at this, this struggle, this conflict between Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain, obviously the seed of the serpent, and ultimately um, going to, to judgment, and Abel, a righteous, and you look at this, this very, very severe conflict between the two of them, and you, you look at the conflict that we have as believers today. You look at the opposition that believers face from the, an unbelieving world. And this, John tells us, we, we looked at 1 John 3.12 a moment ago, but continuing in that same passage, 1 John 3.13, John, the apostle, goes on to say, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And and why is there enmity in the world, in society, towards Christians and Christian truth? Why do you see that in the press? Why do you see that in personal relations? Why do you see that in society at large? And it's, it's not a cultural thing. It has nothing to do with propaganda. It has nothing to do with indoctrination. It can be, but it has everything to do 
with the, the fact that there is spiritual opposition at work, that the world is dead set against the ways of God. And those who are of the world will follow the ways of the world. And those who are God's children will be on the receiving end of the opposition that is inevitable for those who are living righteous lives. It is absolutely inevitable that Christians will face opposition. So why is it that there is enmity? And the answer is given by Cain's murder of Abel. Those who walk in the way of the Lord will be hated by those who walk in the way of Cain. And so for those of us who are walking in the way of Abel, obeying God, walking in righteous lives, those who are God's children, adopted by him into his family, purchased by Christ, we can't be surprised, we, we should not be surprised if the, the lineage of Cain meets out its anger and its hostility towards us. It is inevitable. There, there are, that's the, the, the antithesis that exists in the world that we're in. And so the scripture is very clear. The, the apostle John goes on in the gospel of John, John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. So when we see the opposition that Abel faced at the hands of his unrighteous brother Cain, ultimately taking his life, this is not the only instance of opposition. It literally was a prototype of what goes on throughout biblical history, and it goes on in the world today. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So, Christian, when you encounter persecution, not if you encounter persecution, but when you face opposition, just know that the real target is Christ, and you happen to be in close proximity to Christ. The closer you walk to Christ, the more you can expect that you will be suffering the slings and arrows of ungodly opposition. It's not to be feared, it's not to be shunned, it's not to be something fearful of. It's just that the closer you walk with Christ, and Abel was walking with the Lord, then you're the target of the devil. You're the target of the world. You're the target of this world system. So it's important that we realize that. So let's go over to the next page. We talked about sin crouching. We talked about sin striking. Sin convicted is the third aspect, the top of page 9. In Genesis 4, verse 9, uh, we see exactly what took place. Uh, there was this luring away of Abel to the field. Abel had no idea what was going on. Cain premeditated in his heart exactly what he would do. He was taking his brother out in the field to murder him. He knew, he knew what he would do. He knew when he would do it. He knew how he would do it. He had the instruments of murder in his hands, whatever those instruments were, and he took the innocent life of his brother. And he, he did not expect, and we can see this from his response to God's questions later, that his evil would be ferreted out by God, that it would even be noticed. The Lord asked Cain a question. Where is Abel? And, and the word brother occurs frequently in this passage, and that's important that we realize that because over and over Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is recording this, this history of what took place, not just where's Abel, but where's Abel, your brother? Your brother, the closest relationship that, that, that someone could have in a family. Where is your brother? And, and, and so there is this question that, that is being asked. 
the answer that, that Cain gives is indignant and greatly disrespectful. Am I my brother's keeper? And there's actually possibly a play on the word. What was Abel? Abel was a keeper of the flock. And Cain is saying, well, am I his keeper? It's, it's flippant. It's, dig, it's uh, indignant. Uh, it shows absolutely a callous disposition. And, and, and he's giving, he's not answering the question that God is, is, is making. He's, he's giving a very flippant, indignant, coarse, cruel answer. And you would have expected that God would instantly have taken his life just for that retort that he gave. But he didn't. There's more that, that, that plays out. But uh, the question, of course, when God asks that question, where's Abel? God knew exactly where Abel was, of course. There's nothing that's hidden from the eyes of God. But what we see here is the unfolding and the spread and the contagion of sin. Sin progresses, and we see this in the life of Cain. We see it in jealousy. We see it in anger. We see it in an anger towards God that ultimately takes its, uh, its, its thing out on, on his brother. Abel just happens to be the victim uh, because of Cain's hatred for God. Premeditated murder. And then literally just shunning God himself by saying, well, am I my brother's keeper? What, a, what an indignant response. But the answer is, where is he? And he says, I don't know. That's a lie. He knew exactly where he was. And you, you can just see the contagion of sin. It begins to unfold. It gets worse and worse and worse. That's what sin does when it's unchecked, is it just gets greater and greater, more vile as time goes along. And that's why it's so important to, to recognize sin at an early stage. We'll talk about this more in a moment. But to recognize sin at an early stage and to walk away from it, to repent of it, to stop because unchecked, sin just gets greater and greater and creates more and more wreckage in life. But his defiance showed that, that his conscience was hardened, that Cain's conscience was, was hardened at this point. It was callous towards God. And his humanity had been so tarnished that his own brother, if you can, if this was not just an acquaintance, not just uh, the, the proverbial neighbor, but, uh, but it was his own brother. And it shows that that sin that had been crouching at the door had literally mastered Cain's life. God warned him, sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to master you. Cain disregarded that warning of God, and we see that sin absolutely mastered him. And it masters anyone that dabbles with sin. It masters anyone that will, will, will uh, play fast and loose with sin and not ch uh, check sin in their lives, not repent of it. it. It will literally master the one who engages it. John three nineteen. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil, and that's Cain, hates the light. He did not want to be discovered and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is exactly what we see in Cain. In John 8, 44, the Lord Jesus is talking about those who were vilifying him, who were accusing him of all sorts of things and disparaging his ministry. They were seed of the serpent, the ones he's referring to here. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And that's, so when you look at Cain, you can see if you see his, his parentage, his spiritual parentage, who does he belong to? He belongs to the devil. The, the Satan is a murderer. What did Cain do? He was a murderer. He's the, he's the seed of the serpent. 
And there's no truth in him, no truth in Satan. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. What did Cain do? He lied. He tried to conceal his, his own sin. Rather than recognizing it, rather than repenting of it, he, he tried to conceal it. What a ludicrous thought that he could hide the, the, the bloodshed of his own brother from the omniscient eyes of God. So Genesis 4.10, another question. What have you done? And this is, this is the word of indictment. This is the word where Cain is convicted of a sin. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He's convicted. He's indicted. He's judged. Go over to the top of page 10. Hebrews 4.13 speaks of the fact that no creature is hidden from the sight of God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. We need to recognize that all sin is committed in the immediate presence of God, that, that every sin is right in the very eyes of God. There is no hidden sin. It may be hidden from Others in our family, it may be hidden from our co-workers, it may be hidden from society, but there is no real hidden sin. Every sin is obvious to God. He, he observes it and he judges it. And here the evidence was abundant before in all-seeing God. I'm reminded as I, as I look at this that uh, of Psalm 10 that Cain exemplified the wicked. Psalm 10, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, does not seek God. All of his thoughts are there is no God. Cain was acting as if God was not God. He, he lied to God. You can't lie to God. You can't hide anything from God. You can't treat God as if he doesn't know what he knows. You're creating some false God in your own imagination, and that's exactly what Cain was doing. He was reducing God to his own level, and you cannot do that. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. That's, that, that's his thought, that your judgments are out of his sight. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. That's exactly what Cain did. He lurked to catch his brother. He catches the afflicted and he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Is there anything more preposterous than that, than to say that this God will not know what I have done? That is the ultimate in self-deception. God always knows what we've done. And Cain could not change the reality of that simply by treating it as if God was less than he is. God is omniscient. God is righteous. God is just. God will not countenance sin. He will hold the sinner accountable for what he has done or what he's not done, as the case may be. But the, the blood of Abel, of Abel spoke to God from the ground. And there is this element in which one person has described it as a foolish atheism and taken root in Cain's heart. Why, why does he use that expression, an atheism? Because when we treat God as if he doesn't know what he knows, as if he won't hold us accountable, that he is indifferent towards sin, then we're really treating God as if there is no God. That's exactly what, what Psalm 10 is saying. We're treating God as if there's no God. We're elevating ourselves to God, and we're disparaging God. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Jesus himself spoke of, of Abel's blood in Matthew 23. And God does not 
forget the death of innocence. I'll speak of this a little bit more later, but by way of application, I, I can't help but think of what it is that we observe when we go to Hope Clinic and we see escorts and we see practitioners, medical practitioners who've taken the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, callously taking the lives of innocent, unborn children. And it's full of lies. There is no hope there. It's not about choice. The unborn has no choice. It's not about women's rights because 50% of the victims are female. It's not about doing no harm because they're literally wrecking an innocent life. They are the seed of the serpent. They are the seed of the serpent. And none of this escapes God's eyes. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, Every sin has a voice which cries to God, and though there be, may be no human witnesses to it, the testimony of God will one day be given. In that exam room at Hope Clinic, in that car when that male escort is taking his girl to Hope Clinic, God is there, and he's observing every step that takes place. And there is no sin that will not be judged. And the innocent blood of shed that is shed by unborn children does not escape the righteous eyes of a holy God. God hates the murder of, of the innocent. None of this will go unturned. If you're looking for a message that will fuel a passion to go share the gospel at Hope Clinic, it's right here. The innocent blood that is shed before a holy God will not escape his notice. Alistair Payne says this, he says, Thank God that the death of an innocent person cannot be hidden from him. He hears the cry of the murdered unborn. Thank God that he knows when his people suffer, even if it never makes it into the media. For their blood takes, their blood cries out to him, even in a world where many quite literally get away with murder. In God's world, ultimately, there will always be justice. I can't help but think of Hope Clinic. I can't help but think of the escorts. I can't help but think of the abortionists. I can't help but think of the men and women who take their children there and murder them. God is incensed at that. God, he hates that. He hates a culture that propagates this. I can't think Governor Pritzker is the seed of the serpent. He is. I have no problem naming him by name. He's created a state that is a safe harbor for the murder of innocent children. I have no problem naming him by name because his own conduct speaks to his character. He's the seed of the serpent. And the murder of innocent children it cries out to the, to the eyes of a holy God. He hates it. And, and rest assured, brothers and sisters, that God will judge. It's not our place to judge. Romans 12 says, we take no vengeance. So please understand, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking someone's going to exact destruction on an abortion clinic, God forbid. God will judge. That's not our prerogative. We're not the executioner. God is the executioner. And he's appointed, by the way, the authorities to carry the sword to protect the innocent. If they don't do that, then they are not fulfilling their responsibility. But it's not our responsibility to execute vengeance. God will execute vengeance. It will not escape his notice. We'll go to the top of page 11. Um, the conviction, what, what's the outcome? Genesis 4, 11 and 12. God sentences Cain for his sin, and now you are cursed from the ground. 
which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. There is an aspect, a very poignant aspect, in which the punishment that is meted out on Cain is eerily fitting to what he has done. What was Cain? Cain was one who harvested the ground. A farmer, the ground is everything to him, right? He works the soil. God literally judged Cain and he judged his efforts and said, you will not enjoy the abundance from the soil that you normally would enjoy. It will become sterile to you because I've judged it. And God is judging Cain and he's he's saying that, that you are cursed. Just like he, he cursed Satan, he's cursing Satan's child. You're cursed. So related to that, he goes on to say, you'll be a fugitive. You're going to be an outcast. You're going to be a wanderer. You're going to be a vagrant, a vagabond. Genesis 4.12. And the very ground on which you try to till the soil and bring forth fruit is going to cry out guilty to you. And you will not find a home. You will wander and you will never come to rest. And the aftermath of all that is the despair that he has, and Cain says that my punishment is greater than I can bear. There is an aspect, and I don't know if if you've noticed it, but there is an aspect of mercy, not saving mercy, but a, a common grace type of mercy that's extended to Cain. Cain could have, and very humanly speaking, should have been taken out right there. But God allowed him to continue to live, even in a, in a cursed position. But he puts a mark on Cain. Why did he do that? Because vengeance does not belong to man. I made that point just a moment ago, whether it's Hope Clinic or whether it's somebody else. Vengeance is not ours. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It always belongs to the Lord. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to put a hedge of protection around you so that anyone who tries to execute justice on you because you are a murderer will be egregiously punished. So there was an element of of grace or or common mercy that was extended towards Cain. Top of page 12. What's sad in many ways about this is the lament of Cain when he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. There is not one shred of sorrow for his sin. There is not one iota of repentance over his sin. There is not an element of the milk of human kindness in his heart when he has taken the the blood of his own brother in cold blood, murdered him in a premeditated way, and the indictment comes down, the conviction comes down, and it's well-deserved, and he says it's too much. There is no repentance here. There's not any element whatsoever of repentance. And sadly, that's the the aspect that we often see of unrepentant sinners is there there may be a moment of transitory sorrow for the discovery of sin and maybe the consequences of sin in this world. But a true repentance is Godward. A, A true repentance says, I have offended a holy God. I have committed a transgression against a holy God. Even David in Psalm 51, when he recognized his adultery towards Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He recognized, of course, of course, we know this, 
There was wreckage that was brought about in the life of Bathsheba, and an innocent man, Uriah, was murdered because of a premeditated plot against him that David hatched and executed. But David recognized that all sin is first and foremost against God. The repentance has to recognize that I have offended a holy God. There's not one element of that in Cain's response. And, and so his, his concern was whoever finds me will kill me, that this will come to roost in my own life. But there is this, this element where he puts a, a grace, mercy that's extended, not saving mercy, not redeeming mercy, but a common grace. It's a restraint of evil that will allow Cain to continue to walk the earth even though the earth has been cursed because of him, even though he will be a vagabond, a wanderer without home, without rest. But God has put a a protection around him, not his personal presence, but his protection so that he can continue. And again, we know that vengeance belongs only to God. Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved. This This is one of the points that we have to draw from looking at how God is dealing with Cain is that it's not man's prerogative to execute vengeance. There is, of course, in Genesis 9, we'll we'll see there is a a provision for capital punishment, and when blood is shed, blood is taken. But in this case, what God is saying is, is I will be the one who will judge you. Man will not be your judge. Man will not be the one who takes vengeance on your life. What's important to recognize in looking at this very, very sobering, very tragic passage is that there's, there's lessons that can be learned and must be learned not only for the unbeliever, but, but there's elements that we need to take to heart as God's children. And um, so there is a, a cautionary message for us as to the gravity of sin and the gravity of an unrepentant heart. Go over to page 13. One commentator said this, that God's warning to Cain pertains as directly to Christians as it does to anyone else. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Or instead of saying its desire is contrary to you, some translations say it wants to master you. It wants to take you captive. Believer, that's, that's true for us as well. We need to recognize that, that if we harbor sin, if we dabble with sin, if we engage in sin and don't keep short accounts with God, sin is progressive in nature and it takes root in our lives. The believer is not subject, not, not in bondage to sin. The unbeliever has no choice but to sin. The believer has the capacity to not sin. We know that. That's the, the, the Spirit of God gives the believer the, the, not only the capacity, but the mandate to mortify sin, to fight sin. But it's a real possibility that in the believer's life that, that we can engage in sin and not keep short accounts with God. And, and we need to realize that when we harbor sin, when we don't engage in repentance towards sin, it's always progressive and it never goes away. It just continues to fester and infiltrate lives. In terms of the, the gravity of sin, A.W. Pink said this. He said, one sin leads to another. It's progressive. Failure in our love to God always results in failure in our love to our neighbor. That's precisely what took place in Cain's life. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, sin has the devil for his father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. Many years ago, back in the 80s, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I got to Kansas City with some degree of frequency, and I would drop by Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary just to have fellowship with some of the folks there. And Jim Elliff was on staff there, as was Don Whitney at the time. 
And uh, so I got to know Jim Ella fairly well. And uh, he's still in the Kansas City area, but he wrote a track that I, I, I've reproduced for you uh, that I've always kept close at hand, and I read it with some frequency. 35 Reasons Not to Sin. It's good reading. If, if you want to see the, the sobering reality of sin and, and the attitude that we should have towards sin, it's, it's all right here. Just a few. Because a little sin leads to more sin. Because my sin invites the discipline of God. Because the time spent in sin is forever wasted. Because my sin never pleases but always grieves God who loves me. Because my sin places a greater burden on my spiritual leaders. Because in time my sin will always bring heaviness to my heart. Because I'm doing what I do not have to do. I'm not sure why the numbering was the way it is on the left, but there's 35 points here. But it, it talks about the, the progressive nature of sin, so you can, you can look that at, at your own uh, convenience. But not only the gravity of sin, but over on page 14, the gravity of an unrepentant heart. Hebrews 3 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and the, it speaks, of course, the author of Hebrews is talking about the call to the gospel, that, that a, 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 a redemption is available through Christ, and don't harden your heart, don't disregard it. I, I frequently will tell the escorts at, at Hope Clinic, you're hardening your heart, and literally I will pray for them in, in a voice that they can hear, that God will deliver them from a hardened heart, because the, the more they hear the gospel, the more they walk in disregard for the gospel, it just continues, their heart continues to become harder and harder and harder and harder. It's, it's a terrible thing to see. That doesn't mean that they're not savable. God saves the most unlikely of people. Uh, look at the apostle, look at Saul, who became Paul. Um, he, he had certainly hardened his heart, but God in his infinite mercy redeemed him and made a trophy of his grace. But when we shun the, the, the grace of God, we harden our heart. And so there is a lesson, there is, I think, at least a secondary application that, that, that we shouldn't harden our heart in terms of sensitivity in our conscience towards sin. When God convicts us of sin, we need to really take it to heart and immediately repent. We don't want to just disregard it. Richard Capo, a, a Puritan from the 1600s, delay is a kind of denial. Delays can be dangerous. Our hearts will cool. Our affections will fall down. George Swinnock, another Puritan, all the while longer you delay, God is more provoked, the wicked one more encouraged, your heart is more hardened, your debts are more increased, your soul is more endangered, and you can, you can read the rest of it. But there's, it's dangerous not to take sin seriously. Top of page 15. These, these Puritans had a very good way of, of capsulizing these things. Richard Baxter, all the longer you delay, the more your sin gets strength and rooting. If you cannot bend a twig, how will you be able to bend it when it is a tree, when it takes root in your heart? Thomas Watson, another Puritan, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. Thomas Fuller, another Puritan, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Well, Christian, what, what, do, what do we say about all of this in terms of how we deal with sin? And Paul, the apostle in Romans, speaks very clearly about these things. I'll just, I'll just read 
um, some passages without much commentary. I'll just let God's word speak for itself. But Romans 6, after Paul very carefully outlines how we can be right with God and, and outlines justification by faith, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, if God wipes away our sin and buries it in the deepest sea, forensically in his bar of justice, does that give us liberty and encouragement just to continue on in sin? And the answer is, is in the Greek, it's a very, very, very strong double negative. No way, absolutely not. King James, I says, God forbid, if I recall correctly. How should we who died to sin still live in it? Christian, you've died to sin. That doesn't mean you won't battle sin. Absolutely, rest assured, on the authority of Scripture, you will battle sin. Every one of us does. But as a believer, a regenerate person, you have a new nature. And that new nature gives you the capacity and the indwelling Holy Spirit gives you the, the strength to walk away from sin, to mortify sin. Romans 8, I'll just read some passages there. As a matter of fact, uh, Romans 8, 13. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's, that believers are, are by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. That's our mandate, and indeed that's our ability. It's our call to, to put away sin, to mortify sin. Every Christian has to be daily killing sin, or sin will be killing you, as the expression goes. Sin has to be taken seriously, but God in his infinite mercy has given us a brand new heart. He's given us the capacity, which we did not have as an unbeliever, to not be in bondage to sin, that the unbeliever is in bondage to sin. There is no chain of sin that, that cannot and will not be broken ultimately in the life of a believer. We have a new nature. We have the capacity to break sin, and we're called upon to do that. So we have to mortify sin, not harbor it, not, not give room to it, but to put it to death. Romans 8, or I'm going to go back, pardon me, Romans 6, verses 11 to 18, and again without much commentary. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When, it, when Paul talks about dead to sin, he's talking about sin as a dominating force in your life. Sin no longer masters you. It has no in, inescapable grip on your heart, believer. But you are alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey its lust. That's a, that's a command. It's an imperative. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That of course, assumes, and rightly so, that we have the capacity not to let sin reign. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Believers, sin shall not be master over you. You will battle sin, and Paul in Romans 7 talks about the, this difficult, brutal battle against sin, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? As a believer, he wrestled with sin. I wrestle with sin. You wrestle with sin. That glorious day is coming when we see Christ face to face, and we will no longer be in the presence of sin, and sin will no longer be present in us. That's glorification, and that's a blessed, blessed time. But that's not now. Today, we're day to day, we battle sin. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slave to sin, you became obedient from the heart of that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, guess what? You became slaves of righteousness. 
people are always a slave to one thing or the other. Either you're a slave to Satan or you're a slave to righteousness. Colossians 1 tells us that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. Do you realize, believer, that as an unregenerate person, you were in the domain of darkness? That Satan had reign and rule over your heart? That you did not have the capacity not to sin? God has delivered you from that. God has empowered you by his Holy Spirit to live righteous lives. He's called us to do that. He's given us a new nature. We're not what we once were. We're not what we shall be. We're not what we want to be, but we're not what we were. And progressively, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And it's a battle. It's a real battle. John Bunyan talked about this battle, you know, the battle of man's soul in in other books. But but John Owen's got the epic work, The Mortification of Sin. But but, uh, there's other more readable forms out there. But what a blessing it is that sin no longer has mastery over us. Sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to have mastery over you, but sin shall not master you because you're not in dominion to sin. It's a battle. So, brethren, take up the the fight and battle in in the power of the Spirit. Don't harbor sin. Don't make room for it. Recognize it. Confess it. Repent of it. Ask the Lord to cleanse you, and he will. He always does. But when 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, and that means literally the word when confess means to say exactly the same thing about sin as God says. What does God say about it? That it's evil, that it's wicked, that it's ugly, that he, that he hates it. But he also says, guess what? My son died for that, and he paid the price for that. So say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin and walk away from it. And, and you are, be a slave to righteousness, be a bond slave to obedience to God. You have the capacity, the energy, spiritually speaking, the, power, the indwelling Holy Spirit to battle and gain victory over sin. You won't gain complete victory in this life, but brothers and sisters, rest assured that you will be conformed progressively to the image of Christ as you walk in, in his power. So there are applications from the life of Cain about the gravity of sin, the gravity of an unrepentant heart, and it does speak of the seed of the serpent, but I, I couldn't help but bring out these, these sobering implications of what sin does and the wreckage it creates in lives. But the word of confidence that I wanted to share with you as believers is that sin shall not have mastery over you. You're not what you once were. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this very, very sobering, grim passage. And and yet, Lord, we we thank you for the word of grace that, that we have in the scriptures about what takes place in the lives of your children who've been adopted into your family and the fact that we are being progressively transformed, conformed into the image of Christ. Thank you, Father, for continuing to work in our lives and to mold us into the men and women that you have designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.